this time of the year, if you look like me, dress like me, you invariably get tapped in the shoulder on the street, usually by these little old ladies, and you get asked all types of assorted questions. Usually deal with Yiskar and when your kipper. So the other day, a lady comes over, is walking back to Rosh Hashanah, and she asks me, so what time are they blowing the show for tonight? What time are they blowing the show for tonight? I know what she's talking about. And I realize she's talking about the blowing of the show for the end of Yom Kippur. Probably the most insignificant of all the shofar blowings. However, it got to the thing. That show, I mean, the whole Yom Kippur obviously is very important. The blowing of the shofar really signals the end of Yom Kippur. That's the end. It's all over by that point. So here's, she's walking around in the purse, you know, carrying a purse in the street. This is on the Rosh Hashanah. And she wants to know when they're going to, she wants to show up to the chauffeur blowing at the end of Yom Kippur. That becomes the entire sum total of her uh, observance. The reason why we blow chauffeur at the end of Yom Kippur is it's only of a symbolic reminiscence of something that occurred once every 50 years. Yovel. Every 50 years there's a Yovel, and which is the seventh Shemitah. And you, it says in the parish of Yovel, you're supposed to blow the shofar. And, and now, so what happens in one second? Yovel's laws are similar to Rosh Hashanah, that you blow the same 30 blasts that you normally blow in Rosh Hashanah, you blow in Yovel. Yovel takes place on Yom Kippur. Reason is because that becomes, I guess, sort of like the end of the cycle, the very, very end, and that symbolizes the freedom of the slaves, the land going back, returning to its owners, slaves going back, getting their freedom. This is really, you know, the whole liberty bell really coming to mimic the chauffeur of Yovel, because that's what's written on the liberty bell, proclaim liberty throughout the land. In fact, for anybody that knows a little bit of Hebrew or Aramaic, the word Yovel literally means a ram's horn. Yovili, will cross and draw, you shall call, proclaim liberty throughout the land by signaling by the blowing of it. So what they did was they adopted the chauffeur idea of blowing to signal freedom, and they made a bell out of it. And they started clanking away on the bell, and it's supposed to symbolize the equivalent of the chauffeur blowing of Yovil to proclaim liberty throughout the land. Why wouldn't that begin in Rosh Hashanah? It happens to be in Yom Kippur. Again, in this week's parasha, we also have a similar idea where there's a mitzvah. In fact, the last two mitzvahs in the Torah are in this week's parasha. What are the last two mitzvahs in the Torah? What's the last mitzvah? We're working backwards. Who knows what's the last mitzvah in the Torah? To write down the Torah. Last mitzvah in the Torah is an obligation every Jew has to write a safer Torah. What's the second to the last mitzvah? You ready for the last mitzvah? Now, the last, second to last mitzvah, the reason why it's appropriate to discuss it now is because it's located in this year. What is that? Something related to Shemitah. That would be a better guess. You know it's not going to be Shemitah since we've already had Shemitah. What mitzvah is related to Shemitah? There's a mitzvah known as Hakel. Hakel was the gathering of all the Jewish people, including the children, once every seven years in the base of Mikdash. It occurred on Sukkot 
at the end of the Shemitah where the king read from the Torah. So again, it's at the end of the Shemitah cycle like now. Interesting, um, you said earlier about Mashiach, the Gemara does say that Mashiach is supposed to come Motsoye Shemitah, which would be around now. So therefore now we are actually living in that time period of Motsoye Shemitah. This was the end of the Shemitah cycle. And uh, and this Sukkot, if Mashiach would be here, if he comes in time, we'll have Hakil on Sukkot. The blowing of the shofar on Yom Kippur. Again, is done Motsoy, Yovel. Yovel, of course, is seven Shemitahs. A Shemitah of Shemitahs, if you will. It's a seven Shemitah of Shemitahs, 50th year. So, we'll use the number 50 a little bit later, the number 50, which is Yovel. Let's let's take a look at something else in the parish at all, and then maybe we'll relate it a little bit and come up with a little different understanding of the chauffeur blast on Yom Kippur and what we could learn from it. Parshat Vayelech, Moshe Rabbeinu says, my mission is over. I'm 120 years old. That's the end. I can no longer do it. That's what the beginning of the Parshat says. Vayelech Moshe, he goes and he tells the people, he tells the people that I'm 120 years old, I'm not going to cross over the Yardin. Yoshua, he's in charge. Moshe Rabbeinu, at that point, strengthens Yoshua and tells him, you're the new leader, changing of the guard, and Hashem is going to be with you. And Moshe Rabbeinu now finishes his task. What is the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's task? Vayichtov Moshe's HaTorah Hazos. He completes the Torah. He writes it down and he finishes and he completes the Torah. What does he do with the Torah that he wrote down? There's only one copy. Those days they couldn't run off on uh, photostat machines. So what did he do? He gives it over in the charge of the Kohanim. He places them in charge of the copy of the Sefer Torah. This is a very important copy. This was the copy that they subsequently had to use in order to make other copies from it. So Moshe Rabbeinu makes the the authoritative copy of the Torah he completes it and he gives it over to the Kohanim B'nai Levi or as Rashi indicates here when he finished it Shifto, he gives it over to members of his own tribe Moshe Rabbein is a Levi he gives it over to members of his tribe which leads us with a little bit of a puzzling question over here possibly but let's go a little bit weiter at this point is where he tells Vayitzav Moshe or some name will be Kate Sheva Shonim at the end of seven years Beloid Shnas Hashmitu Bechag Asukos in the festival of Sukos at the end of the Shmita cycle. Then all Jews should gather in Yerushalayim Hakel Asoam Anoshim Noshim Vitav men women and children. The Gemara says why children? Men come to learn, women come to listen, listen not talk but listen. In Shul they should tell them that that there's there to listen not to talk. Or about the kids? The kids are coming to give reward to their elders. Or as some understand it, that it relates to the idea of chinuch. It's true that little children are not going to learn anything, but the fact that they come to such a convocation, it would be similar to the idea of bringing children. We did it with adults, because our adults were like children. But we went to the scene Mishnais, the scene Mashas, the Dafyomi, brought a lot of the people that were, uh, that didn't participate and didn't learn. Why? Because it's a sight to behold. And that in itself leaves an indelible impression on you for all time and that's part of it. It's not really children, they view the hakel 
and therefore this is the beginning of their chinuch. Laman yishmu, as it says, Laman yilmedu. They should hear, they should learn, in order to fear Hashem, to do the mitzvahs. Then, we have another interesting parsha over here. And this becomes a very interesting piece. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, Pasuk Tezayin. Hashem says to Moshe the following, Hincha shochev imavosecha, Behold, you will lie with your forefathers, those you're going to die. And these people will get arise and they will go astray. Hashem is actually telling Moshe that the future is going to be that the Jews are going to be led astray and worship foreign gods. Hashem of the Kirbo, Vazovani, they will forsake me. The Hefer has Brisi, Hashakratito. They will nullify the covenant. Then Hashem says, Vachoro Apibo Bayom Hahu. At that day, my wrath will be kindled against them. Va'azavtim. Notice the the similarity of the words. Vazovani, they will forsake me. Hashem is saying, I'm going to respond in kind. Va'azavtim. I shall forsake them. I shall leave them and forsake them. The histarti fornaimeyam. I will hide my face from them. Vahoyolecho, they will be consumed. They will be eaten up. And terrible, great tragedies will befall them. They'll say that day, God isn't with me. Where is God? All this evil, all these tragedies and catastrophes, it could mean only one thing. God is not with me. There is no God. And Hashem will respond. And this is the whole question as to why this is the the response Ramban talks about it. we discussed it in the previous years we're not going to do it now and I will surely utterly hide my face on that day I'll call our also for all the evil that they've done so this is really where Hashem is talking in the sense he's going to forsake and leave the Jewish people you will not be able to see any sign of godliness in the world certainly in the affairs of the Jewish people. Complete darkness, complete removal of God's presence. This, of course, becomes the root of, of in the Torah, where we find the concept of Megillah. So Esther, Gemara says, where do we know the story of Esther? From where is it hinted at in the Torah? It's alluded to in the Pasuk, Haster, Aster. Aster, play on the words Aster and Esther. But, of course, there's a much deeper significance as well. Because... Aster and Esther is Hashem as he relates to the Jewish people in Golis with a hidden manner rather than with openly revealed face of Hashem, the light of Hashem, the miracles of Hashem. The name of Hashem, therefore, is not mentioned anywhere in the Megillah. There's no mention of the name of Hashem because he's somewhat recessed. He's hidden. The question is, how does it relate to this Pasuk? That's an issue I don't want to get into now. The Ramban talks about it. Is this complete Hester part of Because if you notice, the word Hester is used three times. It originally says, Vazavtim Vistarti, I will forsake them and I will utterly hide myself from them. Here it says, Vanochi Haster Aster. So what the repetition is all about, also how does it fit into the last verse, which seems to indicate a steering of tshuva. Therefore, says the Ramban, 
this is a different kind of a Hester Potnam than the previous one. The previous one is an utter forsaking. This is one where Hashem is already behind the scenes. That's why it relates much better to Megillus Esther, because it's not openly revealed miracles, it's not ghoul, it's not redemption, but it's not quite the forsaking of us in Golis as well. Read as it may, that's not really relevant for us. We're going to get back to this Pasuk. But here's where we find the mitzvah of writing the Sefer Torah, the last mitzvah in the Torah, comes juxtaposed directly after this Pasuk. Therefore write this song. Why is the Torah referred to as a song, or perhaps it's referred to Parshas Hazinu? Again, that's a technical question. It's a halachic issue. We've shown them, speak about it, we're not going to discuss it. It's enough to know that this is the source of, this is the proof text, as you will say, of where we know the obligation to write a Sefer Torah. Write down this Torah. The Lamdu has B'nai Yisrael. Teach it into the mouths, teach it to the Jewish people. Sima B'fim, put it in their mouths. The Matiya Torah, So, we have the last mitzvah in the Torah placed right immediately after a very brief passage, but one that has has a tremendous portent of, of tragedy and catastrophe. In point of fact, the um, the discovery seminars, the Torah, the Darachim, when they put through the computers and they wanted to discover where is there a source in the Torah, a hint to the Holocaust, to the Shoah, this is where they came up with it. In fact, if you look on your page over here, you will see, by the way, the, the skip distances here are the number 50, which again is very significant because of what we were discussing before about the Shemitah and about the Yovel, that it's the number 50. So they use the skip distance of 50. What do you mean a skip distance? In other words, from letter to letter. If you look in the in the Pasuk over there, the large hay from Moshe is where it begins. 50 letters later, you will come to that shin in the beginning of the line. 50 letters after that, you come to the Vav in the middle of the line. 50 letters after that, you get to the next line on Aleph. 50 letters after that, you get to the hay of Haster Aster. This is where it says Hashem will surely hide His face. And therefore it comes out to Hashoah. Hashoah meaning the Holocaust. Hashem's hiding of the face. and it's in the, But it's interesting also as to which part of the Pasuk of the hiding of Hashem's face. Not the Pasuk that begins with Haster Aster Ponai, which is already an allusion to Megillas Esther, which is where Hashem starts manipulating history in a manner where He's already involved, but behind the scenes where we don't see open miracles, we see hidden miracles, which is immediately after the original one of where Hashem says, Va'azavtim, they start iponai, lechol, they will be eaten up, umitzoros, rabos, mitzoros, and they will be, and they will, great tragedies will befall them. So it comes out that from the beginning of where Hashem tells Moshe, you're going to die. And without Moshe Rabbeinu, or this kind of Jewish leadership, people are going to be led astray and go into sin. And from the sin, they will go to the tragedies and the catastrophes of being totally forsaken by Hashem. Ba'azavtim, I'll forsake them. Bechorah, people, my wrath will be kindled. They start to put, and I'm going to hide my face. And they're going to be eaten up. 
and all great tragedies are going to befall them. And they're going to say, where is God? Where is God? And it ends with a hay of haster haster, which is a different level of where Hashem already, we're still in Golos, but Hashem is already bringing about redemption, or if not redemption, at least salvation. Similar to Megillus Esther. It occurred in Golos, but it was a form of salvation. It was a salvation in Golos. That's why we always talk about Purim, that whenever people celebrate modern salvations or modern miracles, we refer to them as Purim Kokmas, miniature Purims, minor Purims. The reason is because we can't refer to them as Pesach. Anything that occurs in Golos is Hashem saving us, we call it a minor Purim. Purim, by the way, and Yom Kippur have also a very strong connection, just beside the sounding of the name, Yom Kippur. But immediately, once the Jews begin to realize this, Hashem already has mercy, and like Megillus Esther, Megillus Esther wasn't Gula, wasn't redemption, because the base of Migdash wasn't built for another, uh, must be about, roughly about seven, eight years. It, it began, the construction began before, it was about another eight years after the story of Megillus Esther, the story of Purim, that that the base of Migdash was built. I don't have the figures right now on top of my head off the cup, but it's about seven, eight years. In any case, it was a it was a miracle that occurred in Persia rather than in Eretz Yisrael, and it was Purim. It's interesting how we have the same kind of a concept that immediately right after the Holocaust, three years afterwards, we have the beginning of the new kind of Haster Haster Ponai, where Hashem already is now looking at us favorably, perhaps, and He's bringing about certain miracles, but He's bringing it with Hester Ponan in a hidden manner. So first you have a Holocaust, then you have the beginning of the rebirth and the salvation and the and the miracles that happened during the wars in Eretz Yisrael, which w- whatever your your political leanings are, certainly was a kind of a salvation of some to some degree. Whatever you hold in terms of Gula, that's not the relevant point. The fact still remains that there were miracles that occurred, and Hashem certainly took upon Himself the interest of the Jewish people and didn't make a miracle. So it fits in that from the hay of the beginning of the sin to the end, you have the Shoah immediately followed by this Haster Haster, which is an allusion to Purim. And you have a skip distance here of 50. It's interesting also that the word Shoah is only a word that was given, it literally means burning. It doesn't mean Holocaust. It was only ascribed to the Holocaust right. when the state of Israel... Burning or, or destruction, a destructive burning. It's interesting that, here's a quote from, from one of the books written about the Holocaust, people not giving eyewitness accounts. And it says over here the following. The quintessential element that distinguished this event was the search for God. Every Jew who remained in the ghettos and the camps remembers the God syndrome that shrouded everything there. From morning till night, we cried out for a sign that God was still with us. From the depths of our tragedy, in the face of the piles of the dead bodies of our brethren in the gas chambers, in the face of the most inconceivable wickedness ever perpetrated, we screamed, Almighty God, merciful, compassionate God, where are you? We sought him, but we did not find him. We were always accompanied by the crushing and unsettling feeling that God had disappeared from our midst. This experience will never be blotted out of our memories or forgotten. What's interesting is, rather than focusing merely on the tragedy, what they discovered unique about the Holocaust was precisely this quote mentioned here. Omar Bayom they're going to say, on that day, Halo al-ki'ein elokai bikirbi. 
God isn't with us. Where is God? All this evil that's occurring, we don't see God. There was almost a palpable sense of darkness. You know, similar to the three days of darkness in Egypt, it was very dark. Then it became so dark, you could feel the darkness, a palpable darkness. It was the same thing. There's the absence of God. Where is God? You don't see God. But sometimes it becomes palpably absent where you could feel He's absent. He absented Himself. He's gone and you can actually feel Him missing. That's in this Pesach. That's why it's a very appropriate Pesach to see the Holocaust. In. Hashem says, I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to hide my face from them. And then the people are going to say, all well, the tragedies, where is God? And that was one of, the, one of the most palpable feelings in the Holocaust where they were saying, where is God? So, immediately after this, we have the last mitzvah, write a Sefer Torah. Chofetz Chaim learns a very interesting lesson from the juxtaposing of these two different things. The mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah, and this where God tells us, and tells us that in the future, there are going to be great tragedies, and I'm going to forsake them. Chofetz Chaim, you have to remember, died in 1933. He died just before Hitler rose to power, or during that time. One of the things that they say about it is we have Yokor ben Hashem Amov Hashem takes away the great tzaddikim so that they shouldn't have to witness certain kinds of tragedies that befall the Jewish people. Chofz Chaim lived for 95 years, at least. They're not sure exactly. He was either born in 1838 or 1833, but uh, certainly he was born in 1838. He died in 1933, so just as Hitler was rising to power in Germany. So he did not witness World War II, although he did witness World War I. It's interesting in the based on, on this introduction the Pasik, the Chofetz Chaim al-Torah he writes the following he says the following in the Chofetz Chaim al-Torah look in the upper left Zosia mitzvah last mitzvah in the Torah write a Sefer Torah Lichto besat Torah Ukber Rambam Perkzayin Hilchus Tfil Nomzuzus Sefer Torah Halach Alef Boat Zivoy al mitzvah lazu achar Pasik. Strangely enough, we find the last mitzvah in the Torah commanded to us right after the Pasuk, Shal Anochi Haster Aster Ponai Bayom Hahu Al Kolorasha Right after the Pasuk that tells us about God's hiding of His face, God's removal, God's removal of His presence from the Jewish people. Remember, the Chofetz Chaim didn't witness the Holocaust. Says the Chofetz Chaim, Lulam Deinu, this is to teach us, Torah Hazos, that the one thing that we have nowadays to counteract the effects of goals and the hiding of Hashem's face is the Torah. The one thing that we have to protect us from any future tragedies, he's warning of impending tragedies, the one thing that could prevent Hester upon him is the Torah. And more than that, whereas once we lose prophecy, and no longer do we have prophecy and it's and it's gone forever until Mashiach comes. So what do we have then for an, an element of God's revealed face? Even in a generation such as ours, when we see mere darkness and the hidden face of God, the light of Torah will shine through and we can travel through the light of the Torah. As he brings up Moshe from the Gemara, Kinir Mitzvah Torah Or, and the Or of Torah is forever, 
even in a generation of Hester Ponim. Moshe is being informed right before his death this is going to happen. In fact, where does the hey begin of HaShoah? Behold, you are going to die. You, Moshe, leader of the generation, you're going to die, and the people are going to be going off, and there are going to be tragedies, and the one thing that could keep it is the Torah. And the Chafetz Chaim, the venerable sage of the generation, who in many ways embodied Moshe Rabbeinu, because he was, at 95 years old, the oldest surviving. Also, the Chafetz Chaim is universally, universally recognized as, as the shining star in the past hundred years or so. I mean, anybody that wants to make history, so you want to talk about um, the eras, the beginning of an era and the end of an era. Moshe Rabbeinu was an era in himself. Yehoshua possibly was an era in himself, ending with the Zikanim of the generation of Moshe that they died out. The era of Shoftim, the era of prophets. Prophet starts with uh, Shmuel Hanavi. It's, let's say the era of prophets. The era of prophecy ends at a very, very um, distinct time. Chagai Zechariah Malachi, the beginning of the second temple, were considered the last of the prophets. End of an era. The beginning of the Zugos, beginning of an era. The beginning of the Tanoim very often is is described to Hill as being, you know, the first of the Tanoic era. End of the Tanoim very clearly is delineated with Rabbi Yudah when I say clearly it doesn't necessarily mean one person sometimes it's off by 50 years or something like that there's a couple of Talmidim that may but Rabbi Yudah the beginning of the Amoroim the end of the Amoroim the, the sealing of the Talmud Ravina and Ravashi end of an era the Gaonic period the beginning the end of the Gaonic period very clearly defined the beginning of the Rishonim Rif end of the Rishonim uh, again not as clear but pretty clear also tour in that generation, Marshal. What about the next generation? So people who want to draw history, so they end, where, where do you end the next period? Of of the latter sages, they ended with the Chofetz Chaim. He's like the last of the... So Chofetz Chaim was also the embodiment of an era, as well as the last of an era. And it's very interesting how the Chofetz Chaim is talking over here. I mean, he didn't know from his discovery and his codes and all this kind of stuff. But it's interesting, he's talking about this Hester Ponin as a premonition of impending tragedies and how to stave it. And Moshe Rabbeinu was also trying to say the same thing. He wasn't trying to say, there's going to be a Holocaust. Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to warn the people. I'm warned by Hashem there's going to be one, and you got to do something to stop it. Keep the mitzvah of Hashem. Hashem tells him, Hin You're going to die. The beginning of Shoah. And what's going to happen? You're going to be forsaken. End of Shoah write the Torah down. That'll prevent the Shoah. So you have sandwiched in over here, very interestingly, how Moshe Rabbeinu is being warned, after you die, you're going to die, and people are going to be led astray, it's going to lead to a whole cycle of events, that the people are going to forsake God, God's going to forsake them, Torah will prevent that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right. I don't, who knows? I'm just saying it's interesting, just the parallel, how the Chafetz Chaim is also before his death, and he's warning the Jewish people, he's saying that Hester Ponim, we're living in the near of Hester Ponim, the Torah will prevent it. But it's interesting, look at the next paragraph. And especially in this tragic time that we're going through, again, he was living through tragic times, possibly this was around World War I time as well. The Jewish people are facing. 
where you see war on the horizon outside and you see fear and trepidation and, and trembling inside. Now is the time to strengthen ourselves for Torah. In order to light up this tremendous darkness that's coming in, as he calls it, the Hester Ponim Shein Kamo, this hiding of God's face that is unparalleled. This unparalleled darkness that we're going through, he says the only thing that's going to save us is the Torah. What was the Chofetz Chaim referring to? What was he referring to when he talks over here about Torah and the darkness? Again, by Moshe Rabbeinu, we have a very clear indication of the Pasuk. So therefore, the Chofetz Chaim was living in an era of what we could call the modern era, where people are in effect saying that we got to educate our kids. We got to send them to Ramaz, and they got to be graduates, and they got to be a... You know, there's a lot of things we got to teach our kids. Torah is relegated to a secondary position. That's the truth. The, the honest truth is, by most Orthodox Jews, forget about conservative reform, by most Orthodox Jews, they will not admit it, but the Torah is relegated to a secondary role, unprecedented, unparalleled in Jewish history, that people should be like that. They should give Torah second fiddle to everything else. It's unparalleled. And let's admit it, this is true, this is where it is nowadays. Parnassah comes first, secular education comes first. All these things override and overrule your consideration about where Torah is. That's the way most, most Orthodox people are nowadays. Other than those educated possibly in the yeshivas, it's relegated to the secondary role. So in a sense, what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, that people are going to get up and they're going to be led astray, they're going away. They're going to be led astray and follow the strange gods of the land. He was obviously referring to the idols in Eretz Yisrael. We could say that that's exactly what's happening to our people nowadays. The come home, this nation is going to get up. The zona that they're in. Asher It's interesting. The, although Moshe was referring to the Jews of Eretz Yisrael, but one could say that it's so true about the Golos. We are being led astray and following the gods, the strange gods, of the land, that we are entering into their midst. Now, Moshe is referring to Israel, but it's so true about today that wherever Jews go, whatever country, we're in America now. We're in America. And they go into it. And they forsake me. And they will abolish my covenant. And Hashem says the response is, I will forsake them. I will leave them. Says the Chofetz Chaim. We're living in an era of Hester Ponen. We have to strengthen Torah. Part of the problem that he's warning, the impending tragedy and doom that may be coming, results from forsaking of Torah study the way it was. Let's take a look at the Maisei Lumelach, which was um, which was written, I guess, by his son-in-law about things that the Chofetz Chaim said. I left out a couple of paragraphs in the middle because that wasn't so relevant to us. So I only put in the parts that I felt relevant. He says that the Chofetz Chaim was very, very strong in giving Musr about Bittel Torah. Now, what is Bittel Torah? 
Was it about wasting your time? No, just sitting around wasting your time. People that waste their time in vanities. But he brings down the Gemara, which we've once seen. The Gemara in Menachos, Davtzadik, Tesamet, Beis. Shoal ben Domo ben Achos, Shol Rabbi Shmuel, Es Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel's nephew once asked his uncle, Rabbi Shmuel, Someone such as myself, who is an expert in Torah, I learned it all, I know it all. <coughs> is it okay for me to go study the Greek wisdoms? Well, obviously, that was the current thing in the time. I want to go to Harvard. Is it okay for me to go to Harvard, Yale, the Ivy League colleges? Is what he's asking. Greek wisdom. This Sefer Torah shall never depart from your mouth and you shall, you shall diligently delve in it day and night. Seek out a time which is not part of the day or the night and you'll have time to study whatever you want. But day and night is already taken by God. That belongs to God and that's what God says. So the Chavz Chaim clearly was referring not merely to just waste of time, he's talking to people relegating this secondary role to Torah and trying to go off into other fields. Again, I don't want to get into the issue here about the permissibility of studying secular knowledge, which is an issue in itself, and it's a halachic issue, and that Shulchan Aruch talks about, and whether they use this Gemara completely or not, how we use this Gemara, um, you know, what your yoytz, what your minimal obligations are. I don't want to get to the obligation. I'm just more going into the theory of the hashkaf behind how people view things, the perspective. The perspective is, I went to tw- till I was 12, 13, right? That's what they do in a lot of these places. And it used to be, now they don't do it anymore because no one wants to send their kids to public school. But when I was growing up, public school was still considered a viable option. People at age 12, 13, now you go to public school, right? From 12, 13, you study your Hebrew studies. You got your bar mitzvah, right? Bar mitzvah, and then you go off. That's what a modern version of Rabbi Shmuel ask of Rabbi Shmuel's nephew asking him. I already learned. Can I go off now to, to this other stuff? He quotes here now a quotation, which will, let's take a look at the entire passage on the on the right. This this week, of course, is Shabbos Shuva. The two highlight Shabbos of the year are Shabbos Shuvah and Shabbos Haggadu. Right? Shabbos Shuvah is the Shabbos before Yom Kippur, where we are now. Shabbos Haggadu is the Shabbos before Pesach. It's called Shabbos Haggadu. A number of reasons as to why it's called Shabbos Haggadu. One of the reasons, I think, is also because of a word being used in the Haftar of Shabbos Haggadu where it talks about Haggadu. Let's read this passage. This is taken from the Haftorah of Shabbos Hagodol. It's also the very last prophet. And the last prophecy, in fact, is the last prophecy that closes off the book of prophets. Remember, the Torah is divided into three sections. Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim. Torah being Torah of Moshe. Nevi'im being the book of the prophets. The prophecies is recorded by the prophets. Ksuvim is the writings, what we now call some Greek name for it, uh, Hagarephal. Apocrypha is one, what's the other one? Hagarephal. Good, something to that effect. Yeah. That's the Ksuvan, written under divine inspiration. The era of prophecy, as I mentioned before, closed very 
distinctly, very clearly delineated at the beginning of the Second Temple era, sometime after the story of Purim, or approximately around that time, the beginning of the Second Temple era. According to some, possibly, it, uh, in fact, Suvin was closed several years before Alexander the Great came and invaded Eretz Yisrael. Known as the end of the Persian era, of Persian domination over Eretz Yisrael is the year of prophecy and the divine inspiration being closed. Once Alexander came, which of course was the precursor of the uh, precursor of the Greek wisdom coming in, you know, Alexander being a Talmud, of course, of Aristotle, who was discipled by Aristotle. So prophecy seemed to close right around the beginning of this philosophical era coming in. The last prophet was called Malachi. Who the identity of Malachi is unclear. Some say he was Ezra, that Ezra was Malachi. There are a lot of similarities between Ezra and Malachi. They're both Kohanim. Malachi was therefore the last prophet, and he was writing and recording the last prophecy. This is the last of Malachi's prophecies. With this introduction, these words become much more significant. The words of Malachi become much more significant once we appreciate the fact this is Malachi, the last of the prophets, in his valedictory address, his closing statement, and in the closing part of it, where he's saying this is the last prophecy to everybody. You're going to have to carry this with you for all time. What does he say? He starts off this last prophecy, just these short three psukim, Zichru Toras Moshe Avdi. Remember, for all time. In other words, no longer is there going to be prophecies, there's no longer going to be words of God being given over. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant. Carry it with you in Golos. Asher I'll call as I commanded him. So therefore, his last charge, his last charge to the Jewish people is prophecies being closed. Now it's a closed book. Study it. Keep studying it. Now you're not going to be getting more prophecies. Study what you have. Study the words of Moshe. And then he skips to the distant future. He skips from his era to the next prophet. When is the next prophet? When Mashiach comes. So in a sense, that's, what he, that, that's the juxtaposing of these two psukim. Where he's saying, in effect, saying, I'm the last prophet. The next prophet that's going to come going to be Eliyahu Novi. No Rebbes, no, no prophets along the way. The next prophet that's coming after me is Eliyahu Novi. Hinei Anochi Sholeach Lochem Es Eliyahu Novi. Notice the Vav of Eliyahu is missing over here. It was talked about the missing Vav of Eliyahu's name. It's missing in about six places, or five places. And Yaakov has extra Vavs. Here's one of them. You see Eliyahu is spelled without the Vav. I am sending Eliyahu Novi Bo Yom Hashem before the great day of God that's coming, Hagodol, the great one, that's why it's called Shabbos Hagodol, Bahanor, the fearsome one. Why is there a vav in the You're right, extra vav, it's mulling. I don't know. Maybe it has to do that vav also, because when he comes. Okay. The Heshiv, Leib Ovo Salbonin, Elio Anovi will return the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the children to their parents. And then he ends off with doom and gloom, the last words again. Pen ovo, lest I shall come, the Acacius Horus and I'll utterly destroy the land. That's the last words of the prophecy. As a result, everybody reads the 
the next pasuk again because you're not supposed to end off on a sour note. You don't end off on a bad note. So you always read again. But again, notice his dire warning. He's firstly saying that this is it. Eliyahu is going to come to warn the Jews. Carry the Torah. And put the fathers and the children back together again. Lest I come and utterly destroy the land. In a holocaust, a nuclear holocaust if you will. Where everything gets destroyed and it's all over. Prevent it, lest I come and destroy it. So again, you have here, just like he starts off, interestingly enough, an interesting parallel. Zichru Torah's Moshe Avdi. Remember the words, the Torah of Moshe, my servant. Again, what were the last words of Moshe? Same thing. Same thing. You're going to go astray. Keep the Torah. If not, you'll be forsaken. Doom, gloom, destruction. Catastrophe is going to come. Therefore, continues the Chafetz Chaim with this. And again, it's interesting with the introduction I told you before, the Chafetz Chaim lived before he witnessed the Holocaust. And he says, The second paragraph in the Maisel Melech. His last prophecy. He says in the name of God, Zichru Toras Moshe, Avdi. Again, says the Chafetz Chaim, he's warning you of impending destruction. Again, remarkable how he's just making the same warning. He's saying it's going back on the beginning. That's going back on the Zichru Torah's Moshe. If you don't, says the Chafetz Chaim, you may be liable to pen over the cases or its hair. Says the Chofetz Chaim, he continues. Maybe this is son of that wrote this in. But nevertheless, it's still appropriate to. Take a look nowadays, the era that we're living through. You have to understand, between the wars, there was tremendous upheaval as well. The wrath of God is ruling. In a, in a tremendous way. Maybe he's referring to the World War I, or maybe this is the sun referring to World War II, I don't know. Probably it's World War I. The, the death, the pestilence, the disease, the hunger. It's almost been fulfilled, the warnings of the Tawchachon. The Einochayom Shekil also has to say that each morning brings greater curses than the previous. They were being inundated and flooded like a river. Continues in the next paragraph. We believers in God, the Kelamun of Einovel, this should make us think and ponder. Madua also calls What is so different about our era that all of this is happening? Why does a Holocaust, why do these things happen in our generation rather than previous ones? We have to go back 50 years. Because we did not want to go in his way. Because the pillars, the foundations of Torah, whether it be Shabbos, family purity, 
or the way we educate our children are starting to weaken and fall. You have to remember that in the era that the Chafetz Chaim lived, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like, but it was tremendous. I mean, the innovation of allowing Jewish girls to go to school wasn't an innovation because he saw how there was heresy was rampant. The yeshivas were suffering from it. I mean, you look around Baruch Hashem at a yeshiva like this, and and the boys are, are, are good believers. They're very from me. And yeshivas in those days, most of the great poets and the great apikorsim and heretics, the founders of the Zionist movement and the heretics, these weren't only merely people who were educated. They wanted to revamp Judaism. You have to understand that. I mean, this is an issue in itself to understand what Zionism was all about and some of these things. But because they came from our side of the tracks, they wanted to redo Judaism and make it differently. They were the ones that agitated for the Russian government to impose on the yeshivas the requirement for studying secular things as well as making that the Russia yeshiva have to be graduates of universities. That's why Volozhin closed down. Volozhin, the mother of all yeshivas, closed down because of the Russian requirement that the Rosh Yeshiva become college grads. Can you imagine? <laughs> all the Rosh Yeshiva have to go off to college and university, and the boys should study in the morning instead of studying uh, Gemara, they should study secular subjects. And in the afternoon, as a secondary role, study Torah. No way. It's even close Volozhin. He couldn't let such a thing happen. Who are the people that agitated? for this kind of a changeover in Jewish educational systems. A lot of these graduates. So this was a rat that was eating up the Jewish people. This this desire amongst many to redo the entire educational system. The only thing you can compare it to is maybe Shulamit Aloni as, as uh, Minister of Education in Israel. She also wants to redo the Jewish educational structure. It's very dangerous. That's what the Chafetz Chaim is saying, how dangerous it is. Therefore, he ends off in the last paragraph, Therefore, each sage in his city is required, they're the ones that, that are in charge, supervised, Be afraid of the stuff that you're reading over here. Make sure you bring up your kids with the right focus. And therefore, let's dive into Hashem to remove the wrath from the world. As it says, Bikshu Tzedek, Bikshu Anovo, Ulai, Tisasru Biyom Achron, Hashem, possibly will make the wrath of God go away. And then we'll come to the Gula. So, it's an interesting parallel. Chafetz Chaim, in his era, discussing impending tragedies. Moshe Rabbeinu doing the same thing, and how they discovered that the word Hashoah, with a skip distance of 50, is in this passage. But what's also interesting is also this Eliyahu Novi connection. The connection to Eliyahu Novi and the reuniting of families. You know, now we're dealing with families breaking up and family values. One of the things that keeps families together generation, fathers to children, children to fathers, is of course Torah study. And in our era, we're beginning to see a little bit of this prophecy of where Eliyahu is, is in charge also of bringing the families together, but you have Leib Bonam Malavosam, and you have the universe as well. You have Leib Ovos Al Bonam, Leib Bonam Malavosam. 
fathers that bring up their children and bring them back, and children that bring their parents back. There are many children that are actually bringing their parents. It's starting in a reverse system as well. And that's part of the power of Torah study. So now, this is one aspect. The last mitzvah, therefore, of the Torah, as well as the last warning of the Prophet, is Zichu Torah's Moshe. Preserve it. Preserve it by writing it down. Preserve it by studying it. As it says, And as he says, Zichu Torah's Moshe Avdi. Malachi. I should also point out, if, if Malachi actually is Ezra, Ezra was the one that actually, he was known as Ezra HaSofer, the scribe, who, you know, made sure that the proper versions of the Torah and everything else, this Ksiva Sefer Torah was, of course, by Ezra. He was also the one that that the letters that we use nowadays, rather than the old Hebrew, he's the one that instituted a lot of that. Zichu Torah Smoshavdi. Now, let's go back to understanding. Again, now we can see a little bit where the Hakhel comes in. The bringing together of all the families. Anoshim, Noshim, Ritaf, to learn Torah. Second to the last mitzvah. Bring together the families, learn together. A family that learns together, stays together. Right? We all know. Family that learns together, stays together. But, we're going to try to relate all of this to Shemitah, as well as to Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Shemitah. We'll try to get to that. If you recall, I quoted a pasuk over here by Yichtov Moshe Satora Azos by Yichtov Akon of Lady. Moshe writes down the Torah and he puts in, uh, puts in charge of it. He gives it over to members of his own tribe. He gives it to the Levim, he gives it to the Kohanim, and he places them in charge of the Torah. Earlier in Parshas Kisova, we have the following. Then Moshe Benes has a very interesting pasuk here. V'lo nosan Hashem lochem. And Hashem has not given to you lev lo das, an understanding heart, ve'naim liros, nor eyes to see, was naim lishmo, or ears to hear, ad hayom hazeh, till today. Till today you haven't had a heart. What does that mean? This is speaking after 40 years. After 40 years he's talking about it. Chazal learned from here. Chazal learned from here one thing is that it takes time, it takes 40 years. It could take 40 years for a person to mm-hmm. understand and to comprehend something. That's why it says until after 40 years, you haven't fully comprehended what your Rebbe said. You had a little time. You don't fully comprehend what your Rebbe says till many years later. Moshe Rabbeinu is in effect telling the Jewish people, 40 years now, you're fine. it's finally starting to sink in. Now you have the heart to understand what we've been trying to drill into you for the past 40 years in the desert. But Rashi quotes here something very interesting. The beginning of the second column. The Apostle says, You haven't had the heart to fully appreciate God and to cleave to Him. Until today. What's this until today referring to? One thing we shall see later if we get to it is whenever the Torah uses the words Hayom Hazeh, it means something in particular. It means the approach we're supposed to have to Torah is as if it's given today. Remember when we talked about the story of Elisha ben Avuya, where the fire descended around them, it was because they were learning Torah with the same joy and thrill as if they received it that day at Sinai. Part of the Torah is this idea 
of the sense of renewal and always learning something new. The truth is, this is only true in Torah. It's not, it, it can't mean anything else for a very simple reason. I mean, it's a psychological thing as well. You know, something you do over and over again, you tend to get bored. It gets a little stale. There's only so many times that you can eat warm-up leftovers. You know, it might not taste bad the second time. You keep warming up that chicken the third, fourth, fifth time. I remember eating shivu, yeah, old chicken warming the fifth time does not taste good. It's true with everything. With Torah, it's not true. And the reason for that is well, there's always something new there. If you're learning Torah the way you're supposed to, you always get something new. So you always feel that sense of freshness and renewal. Hey, I got a new insight. So therefore, it's always Hayom Hazeh. It's always fresh. It's always new. It's always today. It's always up to date. Right? Torah is always very modern. Everybody wants to be modern. You can't be more modern than Torah because it's literally up to date. You know, I always used to wonder, whenever you buy these things in the store, it says new and improved. But, but no, besides that, but how long has it been sitting there that they've been writing on it new and improved? It's like I used to go to, you go to these, these vending machines where they sell cake. Fresh daily. What do you mean fresh daily? I mean, they put it on the machine, they send the machine out, the guy could have it there for a week and it could be stale. So you're, no matter what you want to do new and improved, you can't have anything new and improved because from the day that they put it out on the shelf, three months later, look at it, it still says on the new. You know, when Pepsi has a new wrapper, a new bottle, a new this, a new taste, it's new for the next six months. So nothing could really be totally up to date, but within reason, a few months. The only thing that could be really new and up to date, up to date, Hayom Hazer, this day, is Torah. Because today's insights you didn't have yesterday. Hayom Hazer. Today's Torah. We receive Torah today. If you fully appreciate that and realize that it's like the Torah coming from Sinai, then we'd have fire. So that we haven't had the fire yet. Fire on us we don't have. If you'd fully appreciate it. But we do understand Hayom Hazer does apply to the Torah. So Moshe Bain always says Hayom Hazer. And that's why Chazal invariably say, Kilu Hayom Kibalten. View Torah as if you received it this day. But here Rashi says something very interesting. Shomati. It's a very strange way for Rashi to start also. I heard. I heard a Pshat. Sha'osa Hayom. The reason why Moshe says, You didn't have a heart till today, because on that day something happened. Sha'osa Hayom. Sha'nosan Moshe. Sefer HaTorah Livnei Levi. That it was that day that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Torah to the members of his tribe to the Bnei Levi as we just read the Pasuk. It's referring to that day. The day that we just read in Parshas Vayelach. So this Pasuk in Kisovo is referring to what's being mentioned later on, Vayelach, which happened all on the same day. So on the day that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Torah to the Bnei Levi, as it says, wait, I'll come Bnei Levi, an interesting thing happened. Bo kol Yisrael of Moshe. The Jews assembled to Moshe. The Amr alone, they said to him, we stood at Sinai. We received the Torah. Torah was given to all of us. Why are you putting your tribe members in charge of it? We are equally, Torah is to be equally accessible to all of us. Why is it being given over to the scribes, to the B'nai Levi, to the Kohanim? You know why? Because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? Because I'm afraid tomorrow they're going to say, You guys didn't get the Torah. We received the Torah. In other words, later on after Moshe dies, sometimes the people are going to say, oh, let's take a look at the Torah, let's learn. 
what are you talking about? We have the monopoly. Moshe gave us the Torah. He never gave it to you guys. Right? It says clearly, Moshe gave us the Torah. We're in charge, not you guys. So the Bnei Yisrael were afraid. Who knows what might happen in the future when you're not around. Jew, the, the Kohan of the Bnei Levi, may decide to monopolize the Torah. And we're afraid of that. The Somach when Moshe heard this he was extremely happy he was happy to hear that the Jews were so concerned that's what he says today you have become a people today you're Jews this day I finally realized that you cling you cleave and you truly desire HaKadosh Baruch why? As Rebchatzka Levenstein says, I don't have it over here, I have it in last week's piece, we're not going to go into that one I'll just briefly summarize what he says How do you tell when people are involved or concerned about something? By what to what degree they're worried about the slightest doubt, the slightest possibility, the most remote doubt Right? 1% chance of Tay-Sachs I mean, that's it, you got to the other person is 1%, two carriers, it's one time, 1% of 1%, which is 1 in 100,000, unacceptable. I'm just talking about who knows what might happen. Something that really concerns you, you're worried about the most remote possibility. Can you imagine there's uh, salmonella poisoning out there? Uh, they had this story over here in the Riverdale, remember? The chicken. There's one of the stores, the chicken. You invited to someone's house, and you heard that uh, some of the chickens out there, you know, ah, I'm not going to ask, I'm going to go ask if uh, if his chickens come from that butcher shop or where he got from me, he might not know, what are the chances? It's one in a thousand chance, who? One in a thousand, where did you get You got from that store, forget it, I'm not eating it. But go over and ask him, what shechita did you get? Go over and ask him about your spiritual diet. Come on, forget about it, let's, who cares? says it tells you what your concerns are. You're afraid of salmonella. You're afraid of Tay-Sachs. You're afraid of 1% of 1% and everything else. But when it comes to these other matters, yeah, don't worry, it's good enough. It's insulting, and how could you insult people, and you got to be nice to people? How can you, yeah, right? Hayoim hazeh, today I see that you cleave to Hashem because you're afraid that who knows, maybe the Kohanim, what do you mean? It says in the Torah, it's given to all the Jewish people. It's obvious. What are the chances of them monopolizing on the Torah? If the Torah is precious by you, you don't want anybody to get a monopoly on it. You know, you don't want someone to corner the market in diamonds or in gold or in jewelry or in silver or in pearls if you really care about it. What are the chances? What are the chances? You don't take a chance when something is important to you. I remember, I remember during the Vietnam War, how everybody was trying to get out of it and sending their kids to all of these draft-dodging yeshivas at the time. How many names are on the Vietnam Memorial in, in Washington, D.C.? I think about 50,000, 54,000. How many soldiers went to Vietnam in a tour of duty over the entire period? Over 2 million. What's the percentage? 5%. 95% chance of going to Vietnam and not, uh, not dying. Not bad. Okay, wounded makes it a little bit worse. 80%, not bad. Not bad. 95%? Who would take a 5% chance? You take 2 million Jewish kids and you send them off to college. Yeah, they're from, I taught them everything else, but it's very important for their parnosa. 
how many casualties are going to come out of it that they're going to become Mechal Shabbos? They're not going to learn Torah. They're not going to keep kosher. What are the chances? Well over 5%. Probably closer to 30 40%. That's acceptable. Well, my kid's better. If you tell them 60% chance that they're going to come back, no one. Surveys show that 60% of Jewish kids that go to college, when they come out of college, even though those that are observant are only marginally observant, there's a 5-10% chance of them marrying a shiksa, a 30% chance of them not keeping Shabbos, another 30% of not keeping kosher. Yeah, my kid's different. He'll be from the 20% that observe. Even if 80% don't, my kid's better. What kind of stupidity is that? Would you say, well, my kid's a strong guy, he knows how to shoot guns, well, he'll take care of himself. Yeah, there's 80% casualty rate in Vietnam. My kid's going to be from the 20% that won't die. Who wants to send their kid off even on a 5% chance? When it comes to spiritual warfare, acceptable risks. Why? Because you don't view it as a problem. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Today I finally see that you're Jews, that you care about these things, that you're worried, what's going to happen if the Quran do that? You're who entertained such a thought? The fact that you're entertaining these concerns, Moshe Rabbeinu was very happy to hear that. That's what Rebchatzka Levenstein says. That's the part that we slept from last week that we didn't have a chance to go through. But now let's take a look at what Moshe Feinstein says on this. Moshe Feinstein, of course, also is the embodiment of Torah and also the venerable sage of his generation. It says Moshe, top right. Top right. I mean, this is really a concern. Can the Kohanim actually say such a thing? We know that all the people received the Torah in one shot. It was given to all of them. Even the Dine Kohanim, even the laws of the Kohanim were given to the Jews, rather than vice versa. It wasn't that the Kohanim are in charge of Jews. Jews are in charge of Kohanim. Venere says like this, Why did Moshe give them to the Levim? So Taka, why did he give it to the Levim? For a very simple reason. Because they were the ones that were said by Hashem to avoid other kinds of work. They weren't given land. They weren't permitted to work in other areas in order that they should be totally devoted without any kind of distraction such as Parnosa. They should be the ones totally devoted in order to teach the people. Commotion Emar, as it says in Parshas Asabracha, Yorum Yaakov. The Kohanim were to teach the Torah, the Torah of Israel. So therefore, the reason why Moshe gave it to them is because we have this principle throughout that you need people that are totally devoted to Torah, totally devoted without any kind of distraction. And as a result of that, they will be the ones to teach the Torah. So therefore you have to give it over to the people that were going to be your, your mission, your task is to just study Torah and give it over to the people. So that's the case. What were the Jews complaining about? Says Moshe, the Jews were complaining about a Rambam. That's their time. Moshe Rabbeinu gave it to the Kohanim because the Kohanim have to teach the Torah to the Jewish people. So it wasn't a question of a monopoly. It was they were the only ones to be devoted. All the Jews had land. All the Jews have Parnosa. So you give it over to the teachers and to the ones that are totally devoted. Come the Jews with a taina from a Rambam. What's the Rambam? The Rambam, and we'll look at the Rambam right now, it's on the bottom left. 
these are the last words of the Ramam in which halachas? In the halachas of Shemitah v'yovel. So since this is the appropriate Ramam to learn, after all, we're in the last days of Shemitah and Yovel, let's learn the words of the Rambam at the end of Shemitah and Yovel. We're at the end of Shemitah and Yovel. I don't know. There's no real Yovel to be practiced. That's possible. Who knows? But we're at the end of a Shemitah, and the Rambam over here writes this at the end of Shemitah and Yovel. Says the Rambam, Why was Shevet Levi excluded from inheriting any portion of the land and from the spoils? Because they were destined, they were separated to serve and minister to Hashem, and to teach the Torah, to teach the masses. Because that's their mission. That's what they were entrusted with. Therefore, therefore, they were removed and separated from the ways of the world. They were not to do war. They were. They had a divinity exemption. But they also didn't inherit. And their money didn't come by their own labors. Elohim Hashem. They're the army of God. Hashem provides. is their portion. Hashem is their inheritance. He'll provide. Comes the Rambam Halacha Yud Gimel, the very famous Rambam, very beautiful Rambam. This doesn't exclude anybody else from being like this. It's not exclusive to Shevet Levi. call ish ish any man. Me call boy all of them. Here doesn't even say Jews. Me call boy all of them. Any human being, Asher Nod Varucho, whose spirit has caused him to to dedicate himself. And who therefore chooses to be totally devoted Hashem to know God. And he goes in the right path. And he removes, he unburdens himself of the yoke of all of this multitude of narishkeit that we deal with. The people are so involved in. And this human being is Niskadish Kaidish Kadoshim. He becomes sanctified Kaidish Kadoshim like a Kohen Godel. The Yia Hashem Chalkam. The Lord is his portion. Hashem will take care of him. A small amount, not necessarily a lot. As it says by Anybody therefore could be a Kohen Godel. This of course goes back to the Yisoid of the Korohimi Pninim. It is more precious than diamonds. Say Chazal, what does it mean? Yikorim Ibninim, Yikoyin Godel Shabol of Naivul of Nim. Torah is more precious than the Kohen Godel, who's Pninim. The Pninim is a play on the words. Pninim means diamond, but also means inside. The guy that goes inner inside to the inner sanctum, the Kohen Godel who's permitted to go to the inner sanctum. So I once heard in the name of um, of a yeah, I heard this from Simcha Shustel. So he says over there. When you examine, what does it mean? 
Torah is more precious than the coin gold that goes into the Kodesh Kedoshim. We find three kinds of Kedusha, three vectors of Kedusha, if you will. Sanctification of the human being, sanctification of location, sanctification of time. Jews are more sanctified than Goyim. Kohanim, Levim more than Yisraelim, Kohanim more than Levim. Kohen Godel is the most sanctified individual. Locations, Beis HaMedush has more sanctity than the street. Eretz Yisrael has more than the other land. Yerushalayim more than the rest of Eretz Yisrael. Harbais more than, than the rest of Yerushalayim. The Beis HaMikdosh, the Azorah more than the rest of Harbais. The inner Azorah more than the outer Azorah. You know, there's Kohanim, there's Yisrael, there's Noshim. The Heichol more than the rest of it. The Kodesh Kodoshim is the most sanctified spot location on earth. Days. Shabbos is more sanctified than other days. Yom Tovim. The holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur. Most sanctified in time is called Shabbos Shabboson. Holy of Holy Shabbos of Shabbos. Take the holiest day of the year. Take the holiest person in the world. Take the holiest location on earth. Intersect all three Kedushas. Intersect the holiest place, the holiest time, the holiest person. Put it all together. What do you got? You have the Kohen God on Yom Kippur in the Kodesh Kadoshim. Yikorahim Ibn Torah is more precious. That's what it means. That's what the Rambam is saying. Harez and this Kaddish Kodesh Kadoshim. Torah, it says, is open for anybody. It says three crowns Keser Malchus, Keser Kuna, Keser Torah. The crown of Malchus, kingship, was given to David, the kingship. The crown of Kuhuna was given to Aaron, to the Levim, to Aaron, the Levi, that is, Aaron. The crown of Torah is open to everybody. Which is better? Harez and Skadish Kodesh Kodoshim, says the Rambam. Kodesh Kodoshim is what he becomes sanctified. That's what he becomes. What does it mean Kodesh Kodoshim? More than the Kohen Gadol. Gamora brings down the case of Shema Yivav Talion. Walking down the street, and the Kohen Gadol is going, and the people are walking a procession of the Kohen Gadol, as we'll learn in Yuma later on. When the Kohen Gadol finished the Avoda, I mean, everybody escorted him. All of a sudden, they see Shmai and Avtalion. Everybody leaves the Kohen Gadol, and they run off to join a Shmai and Avtalion. Well, Shmai and Avtalion were the greatest sages. By the way, Shmai and Avtalion, converts, converts, or certainly the descendants, or, or, or children of converts, converts or children of converts. Shmai and Avtalion in Rosh Hashanah so, so that's exactly what the Rambam is saying. Everybody, by the way, is looking for the source of this Rambam. Where does this Rambam get from? But if you look at the words of the Rambam, you see how carefully he chose each one. Lo shevet levi bulvad. Elokol ish vish bikol boy From any human being. You don't have to be Jewish. Shmai and Avtalion weren't Jewish. Asher not varucho. But they had this dedication, this devotion of spirit. Harez and this Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddashim, more than the Kohen Gadol. Shmai and Avtalion were not Jews. They were Mikol boy Olam. But they sanctified themselves. And they, Loshev Levi Milvad, they became Kodesh Kodoshim, more than the Kohen Gadol. Says Rav Moshe, the Jews came to Moshe with this Taina. Now we understand what the Jews said to Moshe. You gave it to Shevet Levi because they're the ones to teach Torah and they're the ones to be totally dedicated and devoted. What do you mean? We're also entitled to the exact same thing. We're entitled to the exact same thing as the Kohanim, as we see from the Rambam. 
Jews had an often the Rambam on their side. That's what they were saying over there. So therefore they were saying, they also want this. They don't just want, don't give me the diluted Torah of the working class people. Yeah, you work a little bit, you learn a little bit, you work nine hours a day, you learn three hours, or you work three hours, then you learn nine hours. I want more than that. I want total dedication. What do you mean you're giving it over to Levi? And even if they have to work, but they want their perspective at least to be their main focus and endeavors and work should be in Torah. They could also become great. Any Jew could become a God Lador. Some Jews are able to be like Rabshim Bayahoi and not have to work at all. Other Jews will work and learn. But in any case, any Jew could strive to this. Either you could totally devote and dedicate yourself to learning without working at all, like certain exceptional Jews did, or Rabshim Bayahoi, or people nowadays in Kolil and Yeshivas, whatever the case may be. Or you have people that have to work part of the time. But they could still become great leaders. So Moshe was by indicating, by giving it to the Kohanim, B'nai Levi, he seems to be indicating this is an exclusive domain. And they're saying it shouldn't be exclusive. They weren't concerned that the Kohanim Levim are going to tell him, you know how to study Torah. We're monopolizing the Torah. They weren't concerned with that. They were concerned that the Kohanim Levim may tell him, hey, you're not to go to these exclusive yeshivas. This is a yeshiva for the elite. This is an Ivy League yeshiva only Kohanan and Levim could go to. You guys can't become leaders. You can't become teachers. We have a monopoly on leadership and on being the elite. The intelligentsia, that's us. You guys could study and learn, that's fine. But you can't be the intelligentsia. So that's what they were concerned with. This is what they were afraid of. Moshe Ben was happy to hear that. What was Moshe happy about? Not merely that Jews wanted to learn but to the degree that they wanted to learn, that they wanted excellence in Torah. Moshe, as we know from past times, Moshe said, how every Jew is a Navi? When one of the prophets when, uh, came to him, when Yeshua said to Melva and Nadal, they're being prophets and they're prophesying, and Moshe said, Moshe said, what do you mean, it's a monopoly? I want to be monopolized prophecy. How every Jew should be a Navi? That's Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest pride and joy is that every Jew should be a leader, every Jew should be a morar, or every Jew should be a Pisic, should be an expert, should be should should have, achieve excellence in Torah. They should all be judges, they should all be experts and prophets. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu said, Oh, now I see. That not only do you want to learn, but to the degree that you want to learn. The Somach Moshe Moshe said, Hayoim Hazeh. Today I finally see to the degree that you're cleaving to Hashem, as Rashi says, that you want to more than just know Torah and learn Torah. You want to cling to Hashem. You want to cleave to the Torah. That's a remarkable thing. That's wonderful, says Moshe Rabbeinu. That's what the unique thing was after 40 years. You finally, the message sunk in that Torah is not just another subject. The message finally sunk home. Says Moshe in the next piece. And here he says another interesting, just to show the other side of the coin. If Moshe now agreed 
and felt good about what they said. So how come Taki still went ahead and gave it to them? So why did he still do it? Yeah. Notice they're going back and forth. First of all, why Moshe Rabbeinu did it? Then we said, so what did the Jews think? So now, what did Moshe Rabbeinu think? I don't know, he should have agreed with the Jews. So what Taki is pshat? So it's a very important concept also. The key in shorts and bems If you Taka truly want to learn Torah, you got to know where to learn it and how to learn it. Bamitosa, you want to learn Torah the way it's supposed to. It's not that rely on yourself, my own interpretation. You know, Torah is an open book for anybody. One of the tzedukim, one of the Sadducees, remember the Sadducees denied the Torah Shabal Peh. They denied that there's Torah Shabal Peh. So he want, they convinced one of the kings, kill out all the Pharisees. So he said, yeah, but what's going to be with the Torah? I mean, the king was concerned. What about the Torah? We need teachers. So this Tzaduki, this, this Eloza ben Peira said, eh, Torah's in the corner there. Anybody, it's an open book for anybody. Anybody that wants to learn could learn. All interpretations are valid. In other words, there's a mistake that could be made. We open Torah up to everybody. You know, that was always the problem also. With, with, part of the problem with girls learning was that you have to at least realize to the degree of what we're teaching. You know, part of what they're saying now is, well, why can't they learn like men? Well, there's no way you could learn like men and have babies. It's one or the other. Either you're going to have babies and you're going to produce Jewish generations, not just two in a lifetime, and you're going to nurture them and, and bring them up, or you're going to learn Torah. Anybody that thinks that they could have a career and they could raise a family and still go to the base of medicine and become a Lamdan does not know what Torah is all about. Part of the problem that we have nowadays with this egalitarian stuff and with women learning Torah is a lack of appreciation of what does it mean to learn Torah. It's not what Allah Zabin Poyer said that it's open to anybody. And anybody and everybody could do it. No. It requires a, little, a lot of dedication and a lot of determination. Not everybody could do it. Therefore, you have to have the safeguards built in. It's not open to anybody because they think it's easy. It's not open to anybody. Now, if you really want to learn, then that that Moshe Rabbeinu gave it over to Shevet Levi, who were the Gedolei Torah, and who were the teachers, they were the ones that gave it over to the next generation, and their mission was to impart the Torah knowledge to anybody. So therefore, the same thing in our generation. Forget about Shevet Levi. But any Godla Torah, he's the one that you got to go to for learning. And therefore, you have to have a tradition. This is a way of maintaining the tradition part of Torah. So there's two sides of the coin. It's open to everybody, but we have to realize that that doesn't cheapen it. We can't cheapen the Torah by saying it's open to anybody and everybody for the taking. It's not that easy. And therefore, there has to be a certain limitation to it in order to understand what does it mean. And if you want to learn Torah, you got to go to it. It's not going to come to you. You can't just lay in your lounge chair or on a beach and we're going to skywrite with an airplane Torah over there. It's not going to come that easy. You know, like... Be Makar of everybody. So, you know, all those people, they're doing it now in the Hamptons. In the Hamptons, yeah. the people are there for Rosh Hashanah. So, uh, people are on the beach. So, they want to advertise for the shuls. So, you put a sign over, come to the synagogue, you know. They, they fly they flybys over the beach with the with the airplane. That's the kind of a Rosh That's the kind of a chuva you're going to do. You're laying on, oh, you know what? Oh, what's the address of that letter? They'll fly by again. Write down the thing. Okay, fine. No, we're, uh, fine. That's going to be Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur by you? Yeah. That's, that's exactly the point. Because there's a bunch of Eloza Ben Poiros out there. There's a lot of people that think it's theirs for the taking. 
Torah, yeah, anybody could learn it. Everybody could learn it. You know, this, you open it up, open it up to everybody. One of the next thing is, we'll lay it back on the beach and we'll do Kirov by having flybys and we'll teach Torah over there. Make it easy. Make it real easy on everybody. No. You got a Schwitz. You got a Horv. Rav Moshe himself, Taka. They say the story once came to Lakewood and he saw people over there leaning back in their chairs with the shenders. And he said, how could the only Torah going to come like this? He says, by us, we sat on benches where there was no backs. Because you have to schwitz for tire. You know, lean back and enjoy it and take it easy. That's not the way it's going to come. So you need both messages. You need the Jews to want the Torah and it's open to everybody. But you also need to say, hey, it's not that easy. It's not open to all interpretations.